Welcome to episode 151. Today, we join Dr. Allison G. Dover to talk about her new co-authored book called Radically Inclusive Teaching. With newcomer and emergent plurilingual students, Braving Up. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. I'd like to read to you the back cover of this book. Learn how to enact curricular, pedagogical, and policy shifts that nourish students' linguistic repertoires, redefine teaching and learning as reciprocal endeavors, promote student-to-student interactions that help newcomers feel less isolated, and create opportunities for students to experiment with language in both academic and informal settings. Drawing on the experience working with hundreds of educators and thousands of students in linguistically diverse school settings, grades 7 to 12, the authors challenge readers to engage in critical collective action as they transform their approach to languaging, agency, and authority in the classroom. Ideas of strategies come alive through classroom vignettes, student stories, and samples of student poetry, prose, and art. The book is an enlightening professional conversation that represents the importance and impact of multicultural and culturally responsive education that ultimately leads to linguistically inclusive education for newcomers and other language learners. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so honored to have today Dr. Allison G. Dover on the podcast, who co-authored Radically Inclusive Teaching with Newcomer and Emergent Plurilingual Students. Dr. Dover, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. This is such an honor. I love listening to the podcast and have just learned so much from being a part of virtual conversations with folks who are doing work similar to mine and that stretches my own. And I'm just super grateful to be here. So thanks so much for inviting me on. Well, let's start with uh, giving us the context of your work right now. Sure. So the book that I'm talking about today, Radically Inclusive Teaching with Newcomer and Emergent Plurilingual Students, Braving Up, um, just was published uh, this past April. We're super excited. I know it's amazing. Um, And it comes out of about seven years of work we've been doing here in Southern California with newcomer and emergent plurilingual communities and school districts throughout the region, but really builds on my co-author, Dr. Fernando Rodriguez-Valls, and my work over the over decades. Um, For him, primarily working with languaging and literacies and multilingual and plurilingual students. And for me, coming out of my work in social justice education and teacher education and my own background as a high school English language arts teacher. And in this book, we explore the experiences of, oh, the almost 800 newcomer and emergent plurilingual students that have participated in this work over the last seven years and about 80 educators across three school districts that have been part of it. And it's just such an interesting uh, project for for me as a learner and for me as an educator. Um, Here we define newcomer students as students that have been in the United States for fewer than two years, but many of the students that we work with have been in the US just for a few weeks before they come into our classrooms. Um, Just the linguistic diversity that we get to um, encounter in in our classrooms is amazing. I mean, we've had students from 23 countries, uh, 19 different linguistic communities participate, sometimes with six or eight languages in a single classroom. And figuring out, as a person, I was raised monolingual and English only um, myself and never had the opportunity to be part of a plurilingual classroom as a K-12 learner. 
And so all of this like stretching of languaging is something that I had to do as a teacher and I've had to do as a teacher educator. And so to be in classrooms where plurilingualism is the norm, is what we're all reaching towards and is the expectation of what academic language should be has just been totally transformative. Um, and so, you know, I learned so much from doing this work every day. And it's exciting to get to share it and amplify the voices of our students and teachers in the book. Yeah, the more I realize, I think, I think there's a sign out there on Twitter that says, um, speaking another language is a superpower. Yes. Right. We say that with students all the time. It's actually one of the teachers, Juan Garcia, who has uh, some of his vignettes and stories in the book, and he has this great language selfie. I'd hold it up now, but I have a Zoom background down. And you know, when you hold something up, you can never see it. But for those of you with the book in front of you or on the website, um, we do language selfies with our students, which is essentially where students take a photograph of themselves and then use all of the languages in their linguistic repertoire to share their thoughts and share their feelings. And you know, we think about some of the ways that students choose to use different languages or to translanguage when they're describing those thoughts and feelings. And so we have these little pop-ups all around them. And Juan's happens to be in the book where he talks about his own experiences using his multiple languages in his personal life and his childhood and his professional life. Um, but one of the things he says to students all the time is you have a plurilingual superpower and nobody else has the same superpower that you have. How are you going to use that? in our classroom, in our school, in your community. You know, it's such incredible richness that students bring. And, and we have education systems here in the US that tell students like abandon all of your languages, become this monolingual being, standardize yourself. And we need to work with them say, no, wait a minute, schools are for you. And we need to have schools in which we are embracing our students' full linguistic repertoire and challenging them, them and ourselves to stretch our languaging so that we can be the best possible people, right? And so such a treat. Thank you for that. Uh, before we get, it, you were already talking about Juan and his experiences. I let's pull back and before we get into the book and talk about your personal experience. Can you tell us a story that from your teaching experience that has really informed your practice? Sure. So um, I grew up in New York. I'm a first generation college graduate. Both of my own parents dropped out of college, and I didn't expect ever to have a career in academia. Um, and I ended up, um, you know, coming up through, through really solid mentorship of teachers and guidance counselors when I was coming up in my own school district, um, getting a scholarship to go to a, an elite private university as an undergrad. And in that, in that space, I was surrounded by these incredibly abundant educational resources. And I also got to interact with students that came from a very different socioeconomic background that I came from. And to see the kinds of resources and opportunities and beliefs about themselves that they brought with them into the classroom. And that experience of knowing both like, wow, like I never believed in myself the way these people that I'm next to believed in themselves and was, were taught to expect things of the world around them. And also the ways in which my own white privilege had just a tremendous impact on that opportunity that I had to be in that classroom really inspired me to be an activist. And so my entire career, I came into education out of a deep passion for um, educational equity and social justice. And that journey brought me into the world of teaching and thinking about how are young people using their voices to change the worlds around them. And so I was a high school English language arts teacher in Massachusetts for several years where I worked in a predominantly Puerto Rican urban community um, in central Massachusetts. And I walked into the classroom as a brand new, you know, bright and shiny English language arts teacher. And I, I looked at the curriculum, I was teaching 10th grade when I was hired on. And I looked at the curriculum and every single book that was required for 10th grade students in that district was written by a dead white man. And surprisingly, none of my students were dead white men, right? And so thinking about like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean for my students to be told you have to read these narratives about people that have virtually nothing in common with you, written decades or more before you were born. And then we wonder why students aren't super excited about being in the classroom. And so for me, the work really began by sitting down with that syllabus and saying to my students like, okay, so here's what we're required to read. Let's do some analysis of whose perspectives are included and whose perspectives aren't included. 
um, on this syllabus. And as we went through, and my 10th graders kind of looked at me because people didn't typically ask them, like, what should you learn in school? What do you want to learn? You know, but we had that conversation and they began to talk about some of the gaps in identity, in perspective, in storying that were on our own syllabus. And so we did a project where each of my 10th graders um, worked in groups to choose a book that they thought should be added to the syllabus. And in small groups, they chose texts. And at the time I was still new to the world of plurilingualism. All the texts we work with were in English. If I were to do this project now, we would have chosen texts in multiple languages. Um, but each of them chose a book that they thought should be added to the syllabus and then analyzed it through the lens of everything we have to do as language arts teachers. So they talked about like, how could this stretch my vocabulary? How can we analyze plot and theme and symbolism in this book? What are some lessons that we could imagine a teacher do with a book like this? And they did a poster presentation where they pitched their books and we invited the principal to come and attend all of these book pitches. And, you know, I didn't teach honors and AP students. I taught, you know, your everyday student, many of whom had never interacted with the principal in any manner other than disciplinary before, right? And here they are coming and doing these book talks. And we invited family members to attend and we invited the community to attend. And students were saying like, here, I think we should be reading Push by Sapphire. Or I think we should be reading, oh gosh, I think somebody actually chose like Fahrenheit 451, which is not the book that I would have imagined for this project, but it really spoke to them as something where they felt like they needed to be talking about censorship in a different way you know, all different kinds of texts and watching the way for that, that group of students that thinking about agency and thinking about who were schools for, for me, that was a big part of launching the work that I've done since. And it's been, oh gosh, almost 20 years since I had that first time teaching that work. I know I'm older than I look, right? Um, since I, that first time working with students around, um, around that idea of who gets to write the curriculum and where should curriculum come from. And, and through that journey, that's really what led me to the work that I do today. And you know, as I've moved around the country um, for personal reasons or for professional reasons, every time I get somewhere new, I learn the context in which I teach. And so prior to moving to Southern California, I had been in Chicago and the conversations we have about social justice and racial justice in Chicago are very much bounded by the political and racial histories of the city. And when I moved here to Southern California, linguistic diversity is one of the most um, important and pressing ideas that we're thinking about in our schools here. I mean, some of the 43% of California students speak a language other than English at home. It is inconceivable to me that we have educators in a community like this one where that are continue to be monolingual, that we continue to have classrooms that are not embracing and celebrating and stretching and challenging and um, leveraging the tremendous linguistic resources and diversity that we have here. So since moving to California, I've had to do a ton of growing around what does it mean to be working in tremendously linguistically diverse communities? What can I be doing as a teacher educator to challenge monolingualism in the classroom? How can I be ensuring that we're thinking about emergent curriculum, not only in terms of what book do students want to read, but what languaging do we want to use when we're talking about it? How are we shaping policy in relationship to that? And so that's been my journey. Yeah. Well, that's just really impressive. I would have loved to have been a 10th grader in your class. I, I think just you were so brave to say, you know what, we're going to not read these books and we're going to challenge this and we're going to analyze like whose perspective that is. I, as a newbie teacher, would not even challenge my curriculum. I would say, oh, okay, they, the central office says teach this. We're going to teach that and we're not going to, we're just going to go. And then, and then your perspective and your opinions, no, no matter. Right. Just the fact that you did that as a young teacher was like quite brave, which is one of the section of your books. In your book. It is. Yeah. And no. And I think, you know, one of the things to say about bravery is it's not something we ever do alone. And so I was able to do that because I was surrounded by a community of new and veteran educators that supported me in speaking up and speaking out and figuring out how to use my agency and my privilege and my perspective to come in and do things a little bit differently. And without that kind of a community, it's not something I would have had the strength to do. And, you know, I think that's part of what I so treasure about 
you know, whether it's the online spaces like the multilingual book chats that folks have going on Twitter, whether it's, you know, the DIY PD book um, or, you know, whatever it is that we're creating virtual spaces and asynchronous spaces for people. And then we also have the face-to-face spaces. Like we do a lot in our work and in the book, we talk a lot about braving up in community and how can communities of teachers work together in order to stretch themselves and become ready in whatever way is right for them in that moment to take that first step of bravery and to reflect upon it. But not everybody has that privilege of doing it face-to-face in a professional learning community. And so I think spaces like these and podcasts like this one are just so important um, for folks to be able to have that opportunity. Could you paint for us a picture of what you have in mind of in, uh, bravery in the field? Of yeah, so the phrase braving up comes from actually one of the teachers that we worked with oh, maybe four years ago now, she was talking about watching her plurilingual students in one of our summer language academies being brave with their languaging. And the comment she made is these students are really braving up. They're sharing their identities and they're sharing their languaging with each other across languages in really new ways. And we listened to that. We thought, yeah, the students are braving up, but so are the teachers. You know, we have, as we think about the, the work that we do, one of the questions that comes up a lot is, you have students who speak six or eight different languages in the classroom. How do you find teachers that speak that many languages? And the answer is we don't. Like our teachers don't speak six or eight, some, some might, but most do not speak six or eight different languages. Instead, we need to figure out as educators, how can I teach when I don't have a shared language with my students? What do I do? How do I create a space in which students can bring their full humanity to the classroom? And to do that takes bravery. And so we say to teachers, like, first, you need to look at yourself. You need to interrogate your own identities, your own languaging, your own beliefs about teaching and learning. And you need to become willing to be vulnerable. Because just like you were describing before, so many teachers are taught, like, you teach the standards. You teach what's required. You follow some scripted curriculum written by somebody that's never been in your classroom, that knows nothing about your students, and you do as you're told. And that is totally opposite to everything we believe about teaching and learning. Instead, we say, no, our job as teachers is to create an environment in which learning can flourish. And it's our learning and it's our students' learning. And so to walk into a classroom and say to students, like, here's my own identity. Here's my trajectory. Here's me trying to practice and stretching my own languaging. Like I personally, I speak more Spanish. I'm an emergent uh, bilingual in Spanish, right? Like that's where I'm always stretching myself. I speak more Spanish with students than I do with colleagues because I'm modeling like this is what stretching looks like. Let's build knowledge together. Let's figure out some of the ways that that I can communicate more effectively and um, push the idea of I, I don't have to be an expert in language and languaging in every moment. I'm a learner alongside you. And so that is part of the bravery that we're always looking for in our teachers. Well, it takes a lot of bravery to be a teacher right now in this environment. So thank you for sharing us with, with that with us. Can we talk about, uh, circle back to linguistic dominance? You talked about that earlier. Can you talk about what that looks like? Why is it so um, detrimental and how do we challenge it? Yes, absolutely. So in the United States, we have a system of monolingualism and a real emphasis on what we refer to as a monoglossic ideology. So that idea that there is one way of thinking about languaging, there's one lens that we use when we're looking at academic spaces, when we're looking at content. And in many schools, even where there's a bilingual education emphasis or an emphasis on sort of a dual language program, there's this separation between languages, right? Here we speak English and here we speak another language. Here we speak Spanish or here we speak Cambodian. But in reality, for our plurilingual or multilingual students, all of our languages are happening in our heads concurrently, right? And so we have this really rich, robust linguistic repertoire. And when we have a school system that says, "Mm, you can only use part of that linguistic repertoire right now, effectively we're cutting off our students' uh, resources. We're cutting off that you were referring to earlier as that idea of the, the plurilingual superpower, right? We're saying, don't use your superpowers. Instead, limit yourself to this one very narrow way. And so what we do in our work with teachers is we talk about the idea of creating a heteroglossic ideology. So this idea that there are multiple ways of looking at content, at language, at classroom interactions, and that we need to change our school structures and our school policies 
to reflect the linguistic diversity that our students already have. And that in so doing, we're able to dramatically expand what schooling is and could be. So when, when we bring teachers in to this work, we don't only work with language educators. I'm thinking now, so we're in week one. I was chatting earlier before we began. I was chatting with Tan about we're in week one of our Summer Language Academy in one of our school districts. And this is a program where we bring together between one and 200 students each summer to, to have conversations about identity and arts and languaging and literacies in the classroom. And the teachers we recruit are really diverse in terms of their background. So we have science teachers and we have math teachers and we have English language arts teachers and we have English language development teachers and we have a tremendous range of educators. And part of what we're doing is not saying, okay, here we're teaching language. Instead, we're saying, okay, bring everything you're thinking about your content area, about science, about math, about discourse, and we're going to use our full linguistic repertoires as we're engaging in those ideas, right? And so that idea of languaging happens in all of our languages, right? Learning happens in all of our languages. That's the challenge we're really placing out to schools. Yeah. When I think about people talking about linguistic dominance, I think about toolkits and say, it's someone saying like, oh, you have a toolkit, but you can only build with one tool and go, go right. ahead, go build with one tool while we're allowing others to build with all of their tools. And so thank you for clarifying that. How do we challenge that? Yeah, great question. Um, so part of what we do, um, Teachers often come to us and say like, hey, what are the strategies? Give me, just like you're describing, give me the tools, give me the lessons. And we resist that as hard as we possibly can, right? Because what we're really working towards is ideological shift, is a political shift in what discourse looks like in schools, right? In what our policies look like. Um, and along with those ideological shifts, we get a lot of tools and strategies, right? Because we all need something that we're gonna do with our students tomorrow. When we do this work with uh, teachers, we begin by thinking about professional learning. And so when we were writing the book, we designed it so that each chapter actually has professional learning activities at the end of it that are designed to have teachers think about their own linguistic identities, about their own socialization as educators, and about who they really want to be as teachers of plurilingual students. So for example, we might have a, a teacher trace their own sort of linguistic learning over the course of their lifetime and how have they felt about their languaging at different points? When were they encouraged to feel affirmed as linguistic beings? When were times that they silenced part of themselves? What's the process that they go through as they're planning lessons, as they're identifying texts, as they're engaging students? And then how can they push themselves? What are their goals as teachers of emergent plurilingual students? What do they wanna learn about their own newcomers? And so as we work with teachers going through this process, we're always coming back to that idea of reflecting. And so we place a lot of emphasis on how do we use and leverage what we learn from our students? Like activities are fun. You know, we do lots and lots of fun activities, um, for example, one of the things many of our teachers do during their first days with students is create a classroom jigsaw puzzle. Um, I imagine many teachers are familiar with this kind of activity. If you're not, we have a, a companion website for the book that has templates and resources and what have you. It's uh, bravingup.com. You can access videos of our classrooms and lots and lots of professional resources. Um, but one of these is a, is a jigsaw project where each member of the community gets a, a jigsaw puzzle piece and then they collage the puzzle piece. And we've had teachers do this face-to-face, -face, but we've also used it in virtual classrooms um, as we moved through COVID. So they collage it with um, symbols and pictures and images and words that are important to them. Um, for our students, they love the chance to get really hands-on with arts and crafts or to pull their favorite pictures off their phone or places that are important to them. And then we build on the wall or virtually on a Google slide, typically we'll build a class jigsaw puzzle, right? That brings together each of the pieces that makes us whole. Now that's a fun activity. It makes everybody feel represented in the classroom, folks are there. But when we're doing the work of trying to change schools, we can't stop there. We don't do activities just for an activity's sake. Instead, we need to come back and now think about how do we use this? So now we can look at our jigsaw puzzle that has 30 pieces. It has the teacher's own piece in it to represent that the teacher is a part of the academic community. And then we think about how do we use this? Can we analyze themes? Okay, I look at this puzzle and I see a lot of people have this particular symbol 
or there are lots of representations of family, or many people included foods, or we have these particular words. What does that tell us about our community? Oh, okay, it says that food's important to our community. Let's learn about the ways that our families use food to represent culture or identity. Or people put in these specific places. What's the meaning of these places or these murals in our local community? Let's do some inquiry about it. Let's do some research. Oh, we're from different countries, but we have these, we all wrote down this particular word for friendship or that we have these representations of friendship through language or through media. Let's do some learning about what that looks like. How can we teach each other about these aspects of identity? And through activities like that, we're showing students, not only do I see you and value you, but you are what's worth learning about. There's not some prescriptive curriculum that we're bringing in and saying, okay, everybody's gonna study this and we're going to read short stories or poems or graphic novels about this thing that somebody else thought you should learn. But instead, we're going to create our own comics or graphic novels or poetry about the thing that you said was most important because schools are about you. And our hope is that as teachers go through this process and begin to think differently about what curriculum is in the context of a languaging program, that they then go back to the academic year and start to do the same thing in their statistics class or in their science class or in their Spanish class or whatever course they're in. And students begin to walk into their other classes and say, wait a minute, the curriculum should feel relevant for me. My languaging should matter in this space. And so it's all about agency for us. It, it seems like the field of teaching is moving away from um, I say you do and saying like, let's create together. Exactly, the idea of emergent curriculum, right? That we are sharing in the learning with our students. I think you talked about that earlier, where you talked about culturally and linguistically sustaining pedagogy. Uh, how do we center on that? Oh, great question. Yeah, so when we think about our work, we really define it as focusing on three major theoretical ideals, culturally and linguistically sustaining pedagogy, the idea of emergent curriculum, and then a translanguaging stance. And um, I'm sure that listeners to the podcast are familiar with each of those bodies. There's so much rich work out there. Um, but the idea of culturally and linguistically sustaining pedagogy for us, um, we're always thinking about sort of Paris and Aline's emphasis on this idea of our work is not only responding to students or reflecting students, but authentically sustaining and amplifying their cultural and linguistic identities, repertoires, um, and resources, right? And so in order to do that, I have to know who my students are. So we always are working with teachers around that idea of storytelling. And so you know, as I've mentioned before, we invite teachers to tell their stories in the classroom to set a foundation for then students to share of their stories. And we look for ways, you know, many students enter our classrooms having already been silenced by K through 12 educational systems, right? They've already been told your voice is not welcome here or your perspective doesn't matter. So we sometimes have some unlearning to do with students, right? And so we create that classroom environment in which students um, are able to be brave in which they begin to expect that their identities and their stories will be welcomed. And then we show our own curiosity as educators. Oh, I love hearing about that. Tell me more. I was in a classroom yesterday where we have, I think it's nine languages in this particular classroom. And there are um, three teachers that each have their own linguistic repertoire working together with this group of 22 students speaking nine languages. And collectively, the, the teachers entered with fluency or some degree of proficiency in English and Spanish and Vietnamese. Um, but they have students who speak Pashto and they have students who speak Farsi and they have, you know, so they have students who speak so many languages that are new to them. And so as you walk in, you'll see a word wall on the wall. And we have examples of those both print and electronically um, in the book and on the website, but a word wall where you have, okay, here are nine different languages. How do we say community in all of these languages, right? And throughout the lesson, as they're having conversations, teachers are stretching themselves. Okay, I'm gonna practice saying this in Farsi. What are the other words I need to use to connect to this? How can I grow as a languager? And showing students every time they do that, your language, your identity, your culture is not only important, but it's something I'm gonna learn about because that's my job as an educator. It's not your job as a student to acclimate to me. It's my job as an educator to acclimate to you and to make this school better and bigger and more because you're in it. And so I think it's those ideas is what we're talking about in terms of sustaining students, right? 
what a huge paradigm shift of saying like, okay, I need you as students to acclimate to me, which I think that's the way I teach, and most of us teach. But then the, the change of saying, oh, uh, we, we as teachers will acclimate to you students. And so really that's the center of linguistically sustaining pedagogy and sustaining students' connections to the cultures and sustaining students' languages. And this is why we don't, we don't support English-only pedagogies and policies and practices. Absolutely. Let's move to chapter uh, three. Can you talk about, can we talk about building foundation that gets us ready to teach language explorers? Absolutely. And so when we think about the idea of, of getting ready, um, a lot of what we think about in terms of building foundation is actually building foundation with educators. You know, just as our students have to be re-socialized into schooling as being somewhere that should be affirming, so do our educators. Many of our educators are products of monolingual education systems themselves and have, you know, years or decades of experience being in classrooms where they have been taught as the teacher, you have the power, you have the language. It's a very sort of top-down approach to education. And so when we're designing our programs, and, and right now we have three different um, programs that we're running with language explorers here in Southern California. We have a Summer Language Academy, which is a month-long um, intensive arts and literacy um, rich in, uh, enrichment program for young people. It's not a remedial program to teach them English. Instead, it's a month-long opportunity for newcomers and emergent plurilingual students to come together and experience this really robust languaging. But we also have a monthly Saturday program for th kids throughout the school year that come in and they want a chance to begin doing this work and begin acclimating before summer comes. Um, and so really exciting work for students and teachers. And for us as teacher educators and as um, program leads, we think of these as intensive professional learning opportunities for educators, right? So it's 50% for our K-12 students and 50% for our educators themselves. And so that foundation happens in the context of professional learning. So as teachers are being asked to tell their languaging stories, to share their identities, to work with curriculum that is far from scripted, they have the chance to learn with and from each other, right? And so as we create curriculum for, for each year, um, we talk with teachers about the curriculum we build is a skeleton and you have to put the flesh on it. You make this come to life. Um, so our typical trajectory with curriculum is that um, in, say, a month-long languaging experience, we'll spend our first week thinking about who am I, where folks are telling their own stories, thinking about the parts of themselves they want to share. In week two, they might think about how do I bring my voice to this space? So how do I want to represent myself artistically? How do I want to represent myself with languaging? We do a lot of work with self-portraiture. Um, and we use some uh, process called micrography. I don't know if that's something that folks are familiar with, but essentially it's where students create a self-portrait using words and using all of their languaging. And we have some examples of student-created um, micrographies in the book and then also up on the website. And it's really beautiful. So students are representing their eyes, their hair, their lips, uh, using adjectives in all of the languages that they speak, using adverbs that describe how they move in the world, using um, nouns that describe physical characteristics. And these are as linguistically diverse as students are themselves. You know, so that how do I represent myself? Um, maybe students are thinking about doing, we do some like split uh, self-portraits where students will have on one half of their portrait, what they look like on the outside using images and on the other half of their portrait, what they feel like on the inside. We've had students even do that with invisible ink so that they can show what's beneath the surface that they don't allow anybody to see, right? So how do you represent yourself in the world? Um, we might in week three then think about sort of what does it mean to be, who am I in community? How do I represent myself as part of this community? And then perhaps in week four, how am I using my unique identity and voice to make the change I want to see in the world? And for me as a social justice educator, it is so exciting to have the opportunity to be an authentic conversation with newcomer and emergent plurilingual students about what do you think school should be like? What change do you want to see in your community? And I, I won't get into it right now, but we have, um, we've been doing some youth participatory action research with students where they are engaging in research and suggesting community change. And then we're working with them to make sure our districts are listening to them and taking action based on those recommendations. And it's super exciting. And so 
you know, you ask, how do you create that foundation? Well, to do that work in the classroom, teachers have to have done that work themselves. And so one of our core tenets is that we don't ever ask students to do something that we haven't done ourselves. So in the course of professional learning, teachers have to say, who am I? How do I use my voice and represent myself? How do I do this in community? How do I wanna use my voice to change my world? And so that foundation of really beginning to think of ourselves as learners and as change agents, as educators, we then can do that with our students. And so just for me, you know, I feel so um, humbled by the work that I do with students and teachers because I get to watch them grow and change. And you must know, I, I see the podcast that you create and I look at the DIY PD book and I see the ways that people sort of bring it to life beyond what you imagined on the page. And that's what it's like for us. I mean, the examples that we get to include in the book and the ones teachers have created since, you know, for anybody who writes, there's always a process. Like I think we submitted this book for publication, you know, nine months or something before it actually got into print, right? And so just the way in those nine months that teachers have grown and changed and the new things they're creating, I learned so much from watching the ways teachers create um, and build from the skeleton that we created that I never would have imagined. And now I get to learn from and use in my own classroom. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, teaching is a really fantastic professional development experience as you watch other teachers, as you share with other colleagues how they're doing it, and you're like, oh, I could do that that way. Can you talk about, um, you just talked about students and seeing them growing in the program. Can you share with one of the stories with us? What does that look like? Oh, sure. So let's see, I think I'll tell a story from last summer. So um, we did this work, we began this work pre-COVID, and it, all of our programs were face-to-face. -face. And when COVID happened, we were like, what are we going to do? How do you take a program like this with such tremendous linguistic diversity and arts-based pedagogy and transition it to an online environment? Um, and we talked with our district partners about, you know, is this something that we want to do? Is this something that's even manageable? Can we deliver something that has um, as much rig rigor and richness and is as engaging and inclusive online as we could face-to-face. -face. Um, but what we know is that it was tremendously necessary. Um, so like one of the things we saw here in Southern California is in the first months of the pandemic, students in Los Angeles Unified School District, which is a you know, major metropolitan area, 40% of emergent plurilingual students logged on to online learning less than once a week during the first months of the pandemic, which was a rate that was 20% lower than English proficient peers, right? And in the first year of the pandemic, 42% of the grades that were earned by emergent plurilingual students were Ds and Fs. And so just in those first months, the very beginnings of the pandemic, we saw this profound and inequitable impact on emergent plurilingual and newcomer students. And for any educator, right, we are always trying to address inequity, but to think about the tremendous isolation that was happening for students as they were encountering systems that were not designed to serve them, as teachers were scrambling to figure out what do I do online and often turning to packaged curriculum that was monolingual or monocultural or not well-designed in those early days, right, of the pandemic. We thought that first summer, like we have to do something different. We can't allow this to go on, right? And so we transitioned our programs to online um, in response to the pandemic. And so over the summer, uh, in summer of 2021, we had uh, a cohort of four classrooms of students involved in our summer language exploring, explorers programs. And in one of those classrooms, we piloted our YPAR projects or our youth participatory action research projects. Um, to see like, how does this work in an online environment? And so people that are new to YPAR, that's something that's unfamiliar. It's essentially a research method in which students develop questions about their, the world around them, about their community, about their experiences, about their identities. They go out and they gather data. In our case, we don't think of data as lots of numbers, but we think of data as stories. And so students use photographs, they use interviews, um, they use their own notes as, from what they see around them, observations to gather data about their question. Then they come back and they share their data with a community of peers and talk about whatever this, this issue is or this question is that they're exploring. 
and they make recommendations for change and present those recommendations back out to a larger community. So in one of our classrooms, um, students were thinking about sort of what are the issues that are important? And we had two groups of students that identified questions. One was about mental health and the ways that they were seeing um, changes in mental health in the community through the pandemic. And the other was focused on trash in the community and what they thought needed to happen in terms of cleaning up the community. Now, these groups of students did not all live in the same neighborhood. They did not all speak the same language. Um, and instead, they coalesced around the ideas that were most important to them. So students went out and conducted interviews. And I think in one group, we had four languages. In the other group, we had three languages. So multilingual interviews with peers, with family members, with um, younger siblings. They took pictures of, sort of what was happening in their household and what was happening on their street. And they put them together into online presentations of exploring the, the narratives or the testimonies about what was happening and then presented it at the end of the program to, to a panel of teachers and district administrators and other newcomer students and said, here are our proposed ideas and solutions. Now you tell us what you think. And so that idea of like, we're presenting it for feedback and now we want more, you tell us, you be a part of it really, really amazing work to get to see the, the ways that students were making sense of the world around them and about the ways that even in this sort of artificial online space, they had opportunities to bring their full selves. You know, we had students sort of taking pictures out the window of what's happening on the street outside. We had some students who, um, thinking about like, how do I draw and represent what it feels like in terms of mental health right now for me. Um, you know, really deep ideas, right? And so the story, to come back to your original question, um, one of the things um, I really love about one of the districts we work with is they place a lot of emphasis on what they call systemness, which is making sure the experiences of newcomers and emergent plurilingual students are not isolated and marginalized within the district, but instead become something around which the district is structured. And so they're always thinking about how do we make sure that our newcomers and emergent plurilingual students are in the center. And one of the ways they do that is by making links between different initiatives. So here we have our language explorers program for newcomers, but the district also has this advanced mentorship experience for students who have been identified as being sort of college bound for careers in education. And they assign these intern students to work with our newcomer programs, right? And so we had a student, it's called the, the AIM Mentorship Program. And this was a student who wanted to be a teacher and was assigned as a classroom helper with our newcomers. And watching the ways that this intern, this, um, I think she was an 11th grader, was learning from newcomer and emergent plurilingual students in her own district and thinking about the ways like, wait a minute, like look, I'm learning so much from the ways they're thinking about community. I'm learning so much from their languaging listening to her reflections about what she was learning and knowing she was now going back to her peers and her teachers and saying, we can learn a lot from newcomer students and emerging plurilingual students. Why didn't I know this? I didn't have a chance to do research like this. That for me is those moments of saying, this is how we change school systems. It's not about like one classroom, but it's about changing everything, right? So you've talked a lot about your program. I feel like we should step back and talk about, because there are a lot of listeners who have their newcomer programs or newcomer centers. Can you talk about your newcomer program? Oh, sure. So uh, the Language Explorers is a uh, program that we developed in partnership with Anaheim Union High School District, which is a school district here in Southern California. Um, in 2016, I think was our first year offering it. Um, and it really emerged in response to a district. Um, Anaheim has about 30,000 students, 20% of whom are identified as emergent plurilinguals. So students that speak a language other than English and are in the process of adding English to their linguistic repertoire. Um, there are 54 languages spoken in the district overall, and they get about 300 newcomer students are welcomed into the district each year. And in 2016, there were some shifts in immigration patterns here in Southern California, which led to districts saying like, wait a minute, like we need to change the way that we're thinking about newcomers because we have students coming in that are culturally and linguistically different than the newcomer students that we had in the past. Let's be really creative in terms of how we can address this. What are we going to do? We don't want to put on sort of band-aid strategies. Instead, we want to make sure that our district is evolving and changing in response to the students and communities who we work with. 
And for those of you that are thinking about starting newcomer programs or um, reevaluating the ways that you approach newcomer and emergent plurilingual students, there is an incredible chapter in the book that's co-authored with Dr. Renee Bryant, who's the Director of Plurilingual Services for Anaheim Union High School District, in which she really details a district case study of like, here are the policies, here are the practices, here's how we started it, here's how we funded it, here's how we evaluate it. Really, really useful for anybody involved in district work. It is uh, such a tremendous honor to work with folks like her um, who have just really beautiful leadership um, around some of this work and, and in the district overall. Um, but so that's what was the beginning of the, of the program. And from right from the get-go, um, as, I've, as I've mentioned before, we knew we didn't want this just to be about tools and strategies, but rather about redefining education. And so we went through the process of designing a, a curriculum that that was a skeleton, that was one that teachers could make their own in each classroom in which they work, and one that really was designed to, to amplify teachers' skills and ideologies as we think about working with emergent plurilingual students. And so even the curriculum um, that we design is not written as a script. Instead, we typically give teachers a, in the old days, right, a binder or now Google Docs where we have like, here are some recommended activities. Here are some questions you might be exploring with your students on this particular day or this particular week. But then we also create time for teachers to work together in teams to look at the curriculum and to think about how will you make this your own. And so the physical structure of our, of our curriculum, we have one page of ideas and one page of blank space, right? So teachers are really creating it and thinking about, okay, well, in my classroom, I'm going to approach it this way because my co-teacher and I bring these linguistic resources or these ideas or these epistemological ways of being or these skill sets. And our students bring these things. So I think of, of this week, for example, it's, I, it's the first week of our 2022. As it, I know it's going to air later, but right now it's summer as I'm recording. And it's the first week of our program. And I was at one school site this week. We have four classrooms. They all have the same curriculum, so to speak, but each classroom is addressing it really differently. So in week one, we're focusing on building community and increasing students' confidence and confianza in the classroom. And in one classroom, we have students are painting murals that are then going to be the backdrop for their timeline of their life and the highs and lows that they've experienced in their journey to today. In another classroom, there is a pre-existing mural that was on the wall and students are analyzing it to look at the ways that the artist was using art to tell the stories of the people in the mural and thinking about how they will use art to tell their own stories. In another classroom, the teacher, uh, the teacher happened to have a little um, document printer, a photo printer, and she had students choose three images that they brought with them on their phones, whether they were pictures of people in their lives or images they really liked, to print those out and to paste them on the front page of a journal. And they're working on writing about how these pictures represent who they are. And in another classroom, students have been going through and and really thinking about in terms of what are some of the words that I would use to describe what my life's been like over the last month. And these are all, it's the same curriculum, right? But really different ways of approaching this work. And that idea of, of teachers bringing their full selves and their full vision and their full ideas to a process and then sharing that openly with students and then coming together at the end of each instructional day and saying like, hey, look at what I did in my classroom today. And then borrowing and adapting, right? That's how we can collectively think about creating what we refer to as radically inclusive classrooms, right? That include the, the many identities and cultures and languages and diverse ways of approaching the work. Yeah, so I feel like your program is not just for students, but it's actually for teachers because when we change the paradigm for teachers, we really are redefining education. So I know that you were like, no, I'm resistant against talking about strategies because strategies is like a band-aid, but we're trying to change the structure of education to be more equitable, to be more uh, sustain, uh, affirming for students' cultures and, and languages. Yeah, it's really great. Let's, I feel like I, I, we should end with this in this podcast, but um, tell us about your title, your radically inclusive teaching. I love that title. Like, why, why that title, and what does that mean? Oh, okay, great question. Yes, yeah, so radically inclusive teaching with newcomer and emergent plurilingual students. So, you know, there are so many ways that we approach education through the lens of small tweaks 
right? Folks have written about the idea of tinkering around the edges of broken systems. And we are not looking to tinker around the edges. We are not looking for something that you can sort of pick up and say like, okay, I'm going to do this tiny little thing. You know, even the examples that I've talked about today, it's not just, oh, put a word wall up in your classroom and everything's perfect or do a jigsaw puzzle during the first week and it's all fixed. And then you can go back to teaching as usual. No, no, no. It's about really redefining what teaching and learning looks like, right? So how are we creating spaces in which students' full humanity is embraced and affirmed and amplified? Whether that's their linguistic identities, their cultural identities, their interests, priorities, desires, what's important to them and their communities. We have to create as educators spaces that learn all of those aspects of our students and leverage all of those aspects of our students so that we are creating opportunities for real deep and meaningful growth. And in order to do that, we have to change how we teach and then change it again and then change it again. So I am constantly learning from my own students um, and then thinking about, okay, now what do I need to do differently as an educator? And so that idea of radically inclusive is about the idea of of not just reflecting who's in your classroom, but saying I as an educator and we as a school system are going to change and evolve in response to who's here. And so in the, the research projects that I was talking about earlier, when we say to our students, we want you to research a community issue and then we want you to propose solutions, we as educators then have a responsibility to do something about those solutions. If we just listen and say like, oh, wonderful, that was a great little project, pat yourself on the back and move on, we're failing our students, right? Instead, we need to say, oh, you think one of the problems that's happening in our school district is that too many of your teachers are monolingual? As a district, we need to start offering language classes for our educators and incentivizing them to attend and expecting that teachers are gonna be stretching their own languaging. Or if you're saying you don't have access to enough mental health services or approaches to mental health that are culturally and linguistically inclusive and competent, we need to figure out what we can do to partner with community agencies and community orgs to ensure that those are available and accessible. We need to shift the discourse. And so that idea of radically inclusive teaching really reflects the ways that we as educators, as educational policymakers, as teacher educators need to be evolving and changing. Well, Dr. Asentover, I really appreciate uh, you sharing with your book. There is just, I feel like I'm reading your book, but it's like flowing out of you as you're talking, right? There are so many ideas here, and I feel like I'm at your program, in your program, seeing how it works. You said something about shifting the discourse, and I want to say thank you for your book because it's helping us shift the discourse, and we're not just looking for strategies. We're looking to not tinker around the edges and really change the system with your work. So Dr. Allison Dover, thank you again. Oh, thank you so much. It's such an honor to be a part of this project. And I love being part of the professional conversation. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine.